Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for a special episode. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 137, a bonus episode for July of 2015. As regular listeners know from my day job, I'm on the science team for NASA's New Horizons spacecraft, and for the few weeks surrounding the Pluto-Charon system encounter, we're all out at the Applied Physics Lab in Maryland, which is where the mission is run. Something unique about New Horizons is that we have embedded science journalists who are responsible for taking what we, the scientists, are doing, and they have to convert it to something that the general public can easily understand as well as appreciate. Something that often comes up in skepticism is how bad the non-science-dedicated media is in its reporting of science. And so I wanted to sit down and talk with these professionals and ask them how they do it, how they work really, really hard to be both accurate with the science and not do something that we're uneasy with, but at the same time to also work to get the public interested, engaged, and informed about what we're doing. This was recorded in an open room where there were lots of people coming and going and also working, so the audio isn't the best, but I think that it's a very informative, if brief, discussion. I'm talking with a few of the people who are involved in writing some of the stories and talking about science results for the New Horizons mission and getting that out into the public. And what I really wanted to talk with these people about is how we go from the science stuff and the scientific jargon and what the scientists know we're talking about into something that is understandable by the public um, and what you guys worry about. So I was wondering first if you could Say your name, um, real quick introduction, and then just basically answer the question. Sure. I'm David Aguilar. I'm the ex-director of science information at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, and now I'm working on the New Horizons Pluto mission. I'm Ron Cowan. I'm a uh, freelance science reporter. I worked at Science News for 21 years, and I now write for New York Times, Scientific American, Nature, and Science. Okay. Thanks. Uh, so, with that, uh, we don't necessarily need to talk specifically about New Horizons or anything like that, but it's really the general question of how do you take the science and get that into something that the public can appreciate? Here's the challenge for a science writer and somebody working in the media department. Scientists are very good at collecting the data. Scientists are very good at interpreting their data. They are very poor, yet generally, at communicating it because there's two things they forget that the rest of the world wants to know. First of all, is an introduction as to why this is relevant, and then something within their story that connects to a conclusion. Scientists are notoriously open-ended. The the famous words that every scientist will tell you at the end of their presentation is, more research is needed. That's That's, what gets us money. (laughs) It it means we get more money, we get to research more. But truthfully, what it does, it's a cop-out because none of them want to be tied to a conclusion that might later not prove to be true. And so it is our mission to try and bring some relevancy to sometimes some very arcane and difficult discoveries that it literally takes hours to parse through them. And and I'll just say this, the most gratifying thing for me that when I've read a scientific paper four or five times, I have discussed it with colleagues and come back to the scientists and said, in other words, is this what you're trying to say? And their eyes will light up and they'll say, I never thought of that, because they don't. That's how good science stories are written. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, I try to develop an image in my head as they're talking, and uh, because that's going to help me translate it. For me, just one technique is perhaps talking to more than one scientist on a team, talking, which I need to anyway, to an independent commenter. The more I talk to people, if something is not clear or if one person is talking jargon, by the time I've spoken to three people, I feel like I can, I have a grasp of it and I can just, I have enough of a grasp that I can really translate it. Um, And I will do that technique that David said, you know, well, is this what you mean? Um, And I may ask the same question over and over again. I don't tell people. I don't think you need to have a science background to be a science reporter, but I, my case, I do somewhat. I do not tell them that. I don't, I don't want them talking to me at that level. And, you know, I'll say a whole lot. It sounds obvious, but I don't understand. Can you explain that in simpler terms? Uh, so, I, you know, they have to be pushed, but usually it works out. I'm curious about, so something that I guess we worry about as scientists is that the reporter or the, the journalist is going to, dumb down the science for the general public and we don't necessarily want that because if there's something you know we're we're always pushing the forefront and the, mm-hmm. the next frontier and so I'm curious if you I, I assume that you guys don't think about what you do as dumbing it down so I'm absolutely curious. not so how do you how do you deal with that because taking these high level concepts and making it into something that here here's the point scientists are funded by the taxpayers that pay their salaries. So the taxpayers should be able to understand what it is and the relevancy of the science data and discoveries that are made that come back. When you fall into the category, if they don't understand what I'm doing, they don't deserve to understand it, you don't deserve to be doing the research because they're paying for it. The average knowledge level of Americans in science today is somewhere between 8th grade and freshman year in high school. And yet, they love astronomy. They love the topic. They want to know more. So it is your duty. You may call it dumbing down, which some scientists may feel is disparages their work. It's not. It's clarifying it so the rest of the world can appreciate the phenomenal research you've done. I actually find when I speak to astronomers, planetary scientists, that they're usually, they, they don't have a chip on their shoulder most of the time. Um, I look for analogies. I ask them about an, a, analogies. Well, do you mean, could it be like this? Could it be like that? I also ask them, you know, more than once. So what got you excited about this? I will ask, why is this important more than once? But you know, well, how did you get into this? Why is it, personally, why is this cool for you? And not only, of course, does it make it more personal, but, you know, they they may start talking in a more uh, down-to-earth way at that point. So, I, as I said, I try to push them. I, I try to ask the same question in different ways. Um, if it's a complicated process, so take me through the steps. You do this, you do that. And then, so what's the point of that? What does that mean? You know, and I, I just keep hammering at that, and it usually works out. One of the beauties of doing this, it helps the scientists immensely. Because when they have to go out and do public presentations, and they've walked into a room that has kids from fourth grade up to adults who do not have a science background, if they've gone through this process of understanding how to clearly explain their science, their research, and why it has any meaning to the person out there in the audience, 
they communicate to that audience. It's much easier, it's much clearer, and it's much more satisfying for both groups. Well, that, I think, answers the basic question. I, I know that you guys are incredibly busy, uh, so unless there's anything else, I'll go ahead and end. I will say this. One thing. I found that many of my astronomers over the age of 50, there were a few, a small group that got it. And they participated and they could easily explain in simple to understand words what they were doing. But the younger generation of scientists that is coming out, they get it. They understand communicating with tweets. They understand getting it up on Facebook. They understand the social media network, what will run, what will not. They do get it. They're an entirely new generation of, of scientists. And actually, something that surprised me uh, is that you guys are following Twitter and other of things. Of course we are. <laughs> yeah, we saw, as you said, I saw a double today. Yeah, yeah. So I can't wait to see what happens with this new image coming out. We should take a look and see what Twitter did. I bet it quadruples. I will say one thing about just about the Twitter and the Internet. That, And again, I know this has been said many times, but things in science change. When you're on Twitter, Internet, you know, something goes viral immediately. Um, I think errors can get magnified that way. I think it behooves reporters to be even more careful. And there can be a lot of people, including scientists, who have agendas of their own, and you have to be careful of that. Um, scientists is not your friend. You have to treat them just like you... If it would be any topic. And I think there's... There may be more opportunity to be hoodwinked, frankly. Um, and I think you have to be careful of that. So you treat us as a hostile entity almost? Not hostile, <laughs> but uh, skeptical. I'm skeptical, and I should be. That's, that's what I, journalists I, I, yeah. yeah. Journalists should be skeptical and keep questioning a problem. Right, and it, sometimes there's a tendency for science journalists, I think, not to be so skeptical. I mean, you're you're learning about the details of quantum gravity or something, but... Still, you know, this is one person, and you, you, have to, you have to also stand back. One of the points, as a public affairs media person, it's my job to translate what the scientists have done clearly, succinctly, with a point. And then I hand it off to journalists like Ron, who take it from there and delve much deeper into it. So what I give him has to be truthful, has to be factual, has to be right on, and sometimes helps them with a the hook so they know I can write with this, I feel good about this story, I can really get involved. So media people are the portal to the journalists. That's how we get it out there. All right. And um, I think that's a good way to end it, so thank you two very much for being involved. Sure. You're welcome. That wraps up this topic for the 137th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on this page for the episode on the website, or on the blog post for the episode, or on the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can tweet me at pseudoastro. That's P-S-E-U-D-O-A-S-T-R-O. 
I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell friends, family, and two or three random people that you may never meet in real life. They're your internet friends, though, or possibly your internet enemies.